Well, we're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke. We're studying the Gospel of Luke, uh, and we're in, you might say, the third quarter of the Gospel of Luke in this section of chapters 10 through 18, and we're calling this section Jesus Confronts. Jesus Confronts. So every week we study the scriptures because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And this particular section has a focus on the hard sayings of Jesus. And so there's often sayings where Jesus is confronting our immaturity, and we need to listen to that. Also sayings where he's confronting the legalism of the religious leaders of those days, but also that confronts our legalism as well. And so we want to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to what he says week after week. This week, as we turn the corner into chapter 17, we're calling it Jesus Breaks Our Categories. Jesus breaks our categories. I wanted to say Jesus blows our mind, but that sounded a little too weird. Jesus breaks our categories. So we're going to be in chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those black Bibles and, and flip over to around page 876. Page 876. We'll be in chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. Jesus breaks our categories. Jesus is constantly stretching us in different directions. There's a tension, what some might describe as a paradox when you're walking with Jesus. And I think we've had little experiences in life that help us to understand this. Uh, My wife and I, we went with some friends a year ago to hike the Grand Canyon. And that was one of those category-breaking experiences. It was both one of the most beautiful experiences we ever had and one of the most terrible experiences we ever had, right? I think you've probably experienced things like that. Some people will relate this to getting married. Uh, Some people would say marriage is one of the most beautiful, sweet experiences and one of the hardest experiences that a human can endure, right? Or parenting. Parenting. It's so wonderful. It's so sweet. And you also don't get to sleep for five years, right? And so there's this tension that we feel in discipleship and apprenticing to Jesus where at one level, it's the sweetest grace we could ever experience. But it's also really hard. Uh, As I said, we're in the hard sayings of Jesus. He's challenging us. He's stretching us. This Jesus is the same Jesus that displays the absolute justice of God and the wonderful grace of God. Those tensions are alive in, in Jesus. This is the same Jesus who lived as the perfect human being, Page after page of the New Testament shows us this is what it's like to really being a, to be a, a human being that's in submission to his heavenly Father, who walks in obedience to God. And yet, we're also shown that he is Yahweh, he is God himself walking uh, along the pages of the New Testament. And so these tensions that break our categories are going to come up again and again in the New Testament, but this particular chapter just has more than the normal amount of them, more kind of opposite tensions that we're going to see unfold here. So let's read chapter 17. We'll start with verses 1 through 6, uh, and then we'll read the rest of the verses as we move through the morning. But let's start with verses 1 through 6. It says, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. 
That's their response to this. I think they're trying to say, that sounds crazy, Jesus. Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you add faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus is challenging them that the issue is not how strong our faith is, how much faith we have, how faithy we are, but what's the object of our faith? The object of our faith is Jesus. And if Jesus is the object of our faith, everything's going to be okay. So there's a lot of tensions. There are a lot of strain that's put on us as we follow Jesus. But as long as we're trusting in him, we know it's going to be all right. So let's pray that his spirit would be with us, that he would help us to understand what he's saying here. There's some hard, confusing things, uh, but also that he would make us more like Jesus, that his spirit would help us to see better who Jesus is. Let's pray for a second. Father, thank you that you invite us to learn from you, that you teach us by your word, that you instruct us. We pray now that your spirit would be here in such a way that supernaturally we would listen, hear, and love your word. We pray that your spirit would open up our minds and hearts, that you'd make us receptive to your incredible grace. And we pray that you would do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So again, big idea is Jesus breaks our categories. He's, he's kind of stretching us in, in seemingly opposite directions. Uh, he's heightening these tensions. Um, and so there are three different ways that Jesus is breaking our categories in, in this series of stories and sayings. So kind of a collection of different sayings with the story about a healing at the end that we'll get to. And so number one, Jesus commands us to rebuke and forgive. It's the part we just read. Jesus commands us to rebuke and forgive. Not just one, not just the other, but both. Secondly, Jesus enables the impossible and the ordinary. Jesus enables the impossible and the ordinary. The Christian life is not just one or the other, it's both. And then finally, Jesus heals the ungrateful and the grateful. Jesus heals the ungrateful and the grateful. That'll be the final story that we see at the end with the healing of some lepers. So number one, Jesus commands us to rebuke and forgive. We see this in verses one through four. He commands us to rebuke and forgive. We have these tensions that we often want to resolve by saying, I'm just going to be a forgiving Christian. That's what it's all about. Or you might say, I'm going to be a tough Christian. I'm going to, I'm going to rebuke. I'm going to challenge people. I'm going to hold people to the truth, right? And Jesus says, you have to do both. You don't get to pick. You have to do both. We have to be the kinds of Christians that rebuke and forgive. So again, verse 1 says, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. So temptations, what's that word? It's a Greek word, scandalon. It can mean uh, a stumbling block, uh, a tripping wire, so to speak. Uh, it's the idea of something that can lure you into something bad, something that can trap you, something that can make you stumble uh, and fall. And so the idea is that kind of stuff's going to happen, right? Stuff's going to happen. We have to have a forgiving attitude about the world we live in and the brokenness all around us. Can you be the kind of person that's forgiving, that's full of grace? We live in a broken world. It's not going to freak me out if people fail. Can you be an unshockable Christian? Can you have that kind of grace about you, a forgiving person? But then he adds an important detail to this. He's like, okay, people are going to fall. People are going to trip up. It's going to happen, but woe to the one through whom they come. Danger to the one that makes other people trip up. 
So there's this tension that we are to live out in the Christian life of like, man, I'm not, sh- I'm not freaked out when you stumble, when you fall. It doesn't blow me away. It doesn't ruin my world. It's a broken world. We all sin, right? But I have this passion personally of, but Lord, please guard me from ever making anyone else sin. And that's the tension we have to walk, right? We have to be gracious people. We, we recognize people are going to mess up. People are going to do stupid things. I'm not going to be freaked out by that but I'm going to try to not do stupid things. I'm going to try to not sin. I'm going to try to not make other people sin. And that's the tightrope that he's challenging us to walk here, both forgiveness and rebuke. Verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. He's pointing out a particular focus of the Gospel of Luke, which are the little ones. In rabbinic literature, the little ones would have just been people that are immature, like we might say spiritual babies. You might have heard this kind of phrase, like people that are immature in their faith, or they're baby Christians, right? That's what he's talking about. Little ones, those that are struggling, those that are having a hard time. And again and again in the Gospel of Luke, more than the other Gospels even, we see Jesus' love and passion for the broken, the wandering, the lost, the sinful, the sick, the weak, the poor. And Jesus says, I love people like this that are struggling. My heart of grace runs towards them. And so he's saying, how dare you make them stumble? How dare you lead them into sin? It'd be better if a millstone was tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Millstone would have been this giant grinding stone in the ancient world, uh, probably about the weight of a car, you know? So you could say, it'd be better to have a car wrapped around your neck and be thrown into the sea, right? This, this is a, a woe. This is a curse. This is a how dare you to you and to me when it comes to our attitude of sin. So in the Christian life, we're going to be, again, led towards, hey, we're the gracious kind of Christians, That means we don't really care about sin. He's like, no, you've got to care about sin. Be gracious, be forgiving, but you still have to care. Don't lead people into sin. Take sin seriously. Take holiness seriously. And we can also be the kinds of people that take holiness and sin so seriously that we're just mad at everybody all the time, right? He's like, no, be forgiving, right? Like like sin's going to happen. People are going to trip up. Just don't be the one that trips them up, okay? And that's the tension that he's describing here. He gets more specific about the command of rebuke and forgiveness in verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Again, we're to do both. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Like say, hey, you're, you're doing something stupid here. I care about you. Don't do the stupid thing anymore. And if they repent, forgive him. Show grace. Don't hold it over his head. Full grace forgiveness, and rebuke at the same time. Now we have to recognize how strange this sounds in our culture. Um, I would say rebuke, which is just literally challenging someone, right? Um, And again, let me clarify, rebuke is not picking on someone about everything they do. Rebuke is you've said you're a Christian, you're breaking the commands of God, you shouldn't do that because you're a Christian, right? That's really narrowly how it's defined. You can go read about this in 1 Corinthians Five. Paul gives some really nitty-gritty instructions there. He's like, challenge people that call themselves believers, but if someone's a pagan, let them be a pagan, right? Pagans are going to pagan. That's cool. That's fine. But if someone says they're a follower of Jesus, challenge them to really follow Jesus. That's what rebuke means biblically. And so he's challenging us to rebuke, to do that, but also to forgive. 
Recognize it in our culture, always in the back of our mind, rebuke is like the worst thing in the world. Challenging someone or telling someone they're wrong in our culture is a, is a terrible thing, anathema. It's like the unforgivable sin in our culture, right? Jesus says it's important, but our culture says, how dare you ever disagree with someone? Our culture says, how dare you ever say that something is a sin? That's like the worst sin by our culture standards to ever say that something is a sin. It's, it's a confusing mix of things that we live in and we grow in. So again, we just need to be tethered to the words of Jesus. Jesus says, no, it's okay for a Christian to challenge another Christian in Christ, in love, graciously, of course, don't be a jerk about it, but it's okay for us to challenge each other. But we should also be constantly forgiving and showing grace to one another. So how do we live that out? How do we live that tension? Well, it's a supernatural thing. We, we live it out by faith in Jesus. Because ultimately, Jesus is commanding us to do it. It's not something that makes sense in our culture. Because our culture often offers up these two extremes, right? Of how dare you ever rebuke anyone, because there's no such thing as sin. That's one extreme in our culture. And then the other extreme of legalism, that's like, yeah, rebuke everybody because you're better than them, and hold it over their head and be judgmental about it. And Jesus is like, no, that's, that's a problem too. And he's rebuking the Pharisees for that legalistic attitude. So we have these two tensions that we're being taken in. He emphasizes forgiveness as well. If you look at the way he describes it here, uh, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Verse four, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is symbolic language. Uh, Seven is, you know, like a number of completion, seven days in the week. And so uh, this would be a, a way of just saying ultimate, you know, like keep going. Keep forgiving. Uh, in the other Gospels, it's, sometimes it's translated as seven times seven, right? Even more. It's just this idea of like, just keep forgiving. He, he's not trying to give you an exact limit and say, and then on number eight, don't forgive him. That's not, that's, that's not the point, right? He's saying, take it to a ridiculous extreme of forgiveness. Now, he also is offering the relational dynamic here in how he describes it, that in a relationship with someone, they're going to turn and ask for your forgiveness, and then you're going to forgive them. And then they're going to turn, and you're going to forgive them again. You don't say, no, I don't trust you anymore. You just you keep forgiving them, right? You keep showing grace. But what I want you to understand is the rest of the New Testament and Jesus' attitude towards us uh, teaches us that this is not conditional forgiveness. We don't only forgive people if they repent. God calls us to forgive people, period. We forgive because Christ forgave us. That's what Colossians 3 says. So we forgive because Christ forgave us, whether they repent or not. Now, now trust, reconciliation, right? If you're going to give the keys to your house to someone or let them babysit your kids, that's a whole nother thing, right? You can forgive someone and say, yeah, you're never babysitting my kids, but I forgive you. You can forgive an abuser and say, but I am going to have to prosecute you because I've got to I've got to keep this from happening to other people. That's the only right thing that I can do. But I forgive you. I'm giving up the root of bitterness. I'm not going to hold this over your head. But I, I do need to alert the authorities to let them know that this is happening. But I forgive you. I release you to God because God in Christ forgave me. And so that's a hard line for us to walk. We should forgive. We don't even need to wait for reconciliation or repentance or people coming to us. We can forgive them because Jesus forgave us. But then if you want to have 
any kind of ongoing relationship or you want to trust them, there's going to be more boundaries in place, right? It's going to be a whole dynamic that will unfold. One of the most dramatic examples of forgiveness that I've seen is a few years ago, there was a murder case where a woman walked into the wrong apartment and then shot a guy that was in the apartment because she thought he had invaded her apartment, but she was in his apartment. Um, there was a story about Botham Jean. I don't know if you remember this. It happened in Dallas, so it wasn't too far from here. And so I have a picture here of the brother of the murder victim hugging the woman that had killed his brother. And it's just a shocking image of forgiveness. And we know from his own testimony that this happened because he's a Christian. He still thought she should be prosecuted, just like I said, but he forgave her. He embraced her even. He hugged her. He communicated love and God's grace to her from the scriptures. This was just a shocking image of forgiveness. Now, again, to be clear, I'm not saying you have to hug someone every time you forgive them, okay? But you can release them to God. You can say, I'm not going to hold this over your head. I'm not going to keep hating you anymore because that hatred's just hurting me. It's not, it's not hurting you. And, and allow that root of bitterness to be let go of. Um, Genesis 4 has an interesting story about a character named Lamech. He says, hear my voice. I've killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is 70 times sevenfold. And so Lamech is this picture of vengeance in the Old Testament. And we are called on to be an anti-Lamech if we follow Jesus. We are called on to forgive seven times seven even, to keep forgiving, to keep giving people over to Jesus because Jesus forgave us. And again, I want to clarify something. We don't forgive so that Jesus will forgive us. We forgive because we believe that Jesus did forgive us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that's Romans. And all the way at the end of Romans, it talks about how this is then fleshed out in our life. In Romans chapter 12, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Be humble. Don't think that you're better than other people. Repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to what would be honorable in every circumstance. And then he says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So that's how we're supposed to live this out. Now, this is hard for some of you because your job, as Romans describe, is to hold the sword of vengeance. God gives the sword of vengeance to prevent evil and wickedness in the world to police and soldiers. So many of you, that's actually your calling in life. But what I want to clarify to you is that that's your calling when you're wearing the uniform, but that's not your calling as a Christian. There are two zones that we operate in. The church does not accomplish her purposes. We don't make disciples by bringing vengeance. We leave that to God. And, and God uses the means of the state, right? He uses the means of, of judges and soldiers and police. But when you take off your hat, when you take off your uniform and you're operating as a brother and sister in Christ, you offer forgiveness upon forgiveness upon forgiveness upon forgiveness. That's how we operate in the sphere of our everyday life. So, how can you forgive someone? Number one, remember that Jesus forgave you first. 
And then I think one of the activities that helps is to actually pray for the good of that person. As you're trying to release that root of bitterness in your own heart, just pray for their good. God, I don't know if I can have this person in my life anymore, but I'm praying for their good. And I'm praying that, that you would take them and give them grace and give them life. And then also, it's important to set what your boundaries of trust are. Again, I think Christians sometimes confuse reconciliation and forgiveness. They're, they're not the same thing. If this person's an ongoing abuser, that doesn't need, mean they need to be your best friend, right? You need to release them and forgive them and give them up to God, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you invite them back into your everyday life, and you need to pray through that. Talk to godly friends who can help you think through what healthy boundaries would look like. So Jesus commands us to rebuke and forgive, both. We don't get to just do one. You don't just get to be the kind of person that forgives all the time but never rebukes, and you don't get to be the kind of Christian that rebukes all the time and never forgives. We have to be both. Secondly, Jesus enables the impossible and the ordinary. Jesus enables the impossible and the ordinary. And this is another tension uh, based on maybe how you were uh, taught about Jesus. You might think more of the spiritual life as all impossible, amazing things, or you might have been taught like the spiritual life's just the daily grind of faithfulness, right? Jesus is going to say, it's both. It's both things, right? Jesus enables the impossible and the ordinary. Look at verses 5 through 10, starting in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They're, they're a little freaked out by his challenge to ongoing rebuke and forgiveness. They beg that Jesus would increase their faith. And in verse 6, the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. He's using a proverbial phrase from the first century. Uh, it was just standard, and again, scholars have found this in literature of the day. The mulberry bush was just kind of known as this impossible bush. It was this bush that was really hard to uproot. And so if you had one where you wanted to have a sidewalk, it's like, good luck, you're never going to be able to uproot that thing, right? And so it became a proverb of something impossible in that day and time. And Jesus is like, you could do that if you just had this much faith. It's not about how faithy your faith is. It's not how big and powerful your faith is. It's about who your faith is in. That's overwhelmingly the New Testament teaching on faith. He's saying, you just need a little faith. The important thing is who you're trusting. Are you trusting Jesus or are you trusting yourself? And so he gives us an example, this proverbial example of here's the impossible thing. If you just had a baby amount of faith, the tiniest mustard seed of faith, then you could up, uproot the mulberry tree, which everybody knows we can't uproot, right? He's giving this impossible example. There are other examples. Jesus teaches on this in other places. He's like, you could tell a mountain to throw itself in the sea, right? There are just different versions of this that he teaches at different times. What's the key denominator? The key denominator is it's not about how much faith you have. It's about who your faith is in. Is your faith in Jesus? Then you can do the impossible. But you know what? It also is what empowers us, enables us to do the ordinary as well. Um, in Luke, impossible is often associated with salvation. Uh, in Luke 137, we're told, uh, Mary was told by Gabriel that this thing of giving birth miraculously to the Savior, it can happen because God is involved. The impossible can take place. The Savior can come, Mary. It's going to work. And then in Luke 18:27, we're going to see in a few weeks, the disciples feel like Jesus is saying no one can be saved. And Jesus says what's impossible with man is possible with God. So if you trust God, God can save you. 
God can do the impossible through you. Now let's look at the ordinary, verse 7. In verse 7 it says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. So this is a little confusing to us, again, because cultural difference. Um, In that day and time, especially a servant, but really any worker, you would just expect a worker to work. It's not as much a a common thing we expect of people in our culture. I know it's weird, but in those days and times, they just expected workers to work, and they didn't praise them for it. They were just like, you just did your job, right? So Jesus is using this analogy. Again, recognize as a modern person, part of you grates against this. You think you should get a parade if you accomplish a normal day of work. Jesus is saying, no, if you just do your work, you've just done your work. That's all you've done, right? So let's, let's follow the analogy. Um, he says in verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. He's saying, if we actually obey our master, we've just done the minimum bar. Like, that's just ordinary, This is confusing to us. And this is where the impossible and the ordinary kind of mix together. Because as rebels that hate God, obedience is impossible. But if you trust that God loves you through Christ, you trust that he died on the cross to save you, that he lived the perfect life in your place so that when God sees you, he sees you as beautiful and as obedient and as righteous as his very own son, you know what's going to happen? You're going to start to obey God you're going to start to actually have a new heart that loves him and trusts him and does what he says. Not perfectly, but this this obedience is going to begin to happen. He's going to change your life and change your heart. And yet Jesus says, but be careful. Don't, Don't go around patting yourself on the back saying, look at me, I've obeyed God. I've been morally pure. Aren't I amazing? I'm so great. No, he's saying that's that's really ordinary. That's that's just what we should have been doing in the first place. And so in a sense, this is where the impossible and the possible come together, right? The impossible and the ordinary meet in the middle because apart from Christ, it's impossible for us to be obedient. But because of the transformation, the impossible salvation that he gives us, what's impossible with man is possible with God, then we can obey him. But even then, when we obey him, that's just the ordinary. Faith is just enabling us to do the ordinary. Jesus is empowering us to do what we were always designed to do. And I think one of the things that's helped me the most to have an attitude of healthy obedience to God and his standards in my life is actually looking at the life of Jesus. Because here's Jesus who we often think of as cheating because really he's God, so he's cheating. But again and again, the New Testament tells us he lived as an ordinary man. This was a man that showed us what it looks like to trust God, to joyfully submit, to joyfully obey. So it's a beautiful picture for us of like, oh, that... That's what it's supposed to look like to actually trust my father, to actually love him, to actually do what he says. And then Jesus is saying here, so then when that happens, when that miracle, that impossible thing happens by faith, don't pat yourself on the back, but point to God. He's the one that did that. And you're just doing the ordinary everyday stuff that he's asked you to do. So again, verse 10, also for you, when you've done all that you're commanded, say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. So God doesn't owe us anything. 
God doesn't owe us anything, but by grace through faith, he gives us eternal salvation, that ultimate impossible reality, and he gives us purpose in this broken world where he calls us to obey, where sin's going to happen, but we shouldn't cause sin to happen. He gives us purpose in our everyday life. So he gives us the, the impossible of eternal salvation and also the ordinary of everyday purpose. So number one, have you come to terms with what God owes you? What does God owe you? The scripture says that God owes you death in Romans 6.23. God owes you death. God owes me death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the good news. He owes us death. But when we come to terms with the grace that he's given us, we, we trust him and receive that eternal salvation. Secondly, have you come to terms with what God owes you in your everyday life when it just comes to life and health, um, our business, our success. We tend to think that if we're obedient, that everything will be perfect in the here and now. But again, we've been taught, no, temptations are going to come. Sickness is going to come. This world is broken. The entire world is broken by sin. Even when we do everything perfectly, there's still going to be sin and disease and brokenness. And so we have to recognize that every day that God gives us breath, Every day that God gives us life is another day to have purpose, just like Jesus had, who was sent into this world, out of the world of perfection in heaven, into the world of brokenness and pain and death. And he gives us purpose. He can use you. And again, we don't have to be like, look at me, I'm amazing. I lived a good life. No, he's saying that's just ordinary life, obeying him, living moral purity, doing what God says. That's, that's the ordinary, but but by faith in Jesus, we can have that kind of life. Like Paul describes in Philippians 1, I go back to this all the time. In Philippians 1, Paul says, I think I'm going to survive. I'm on death row, but I think I'm going to get out of it. But you know what? I'd really rather die and be with Jesus. And we're like, thank you, Paul, for your honesty. He's like, of course, I'd rather die and be with Jesus where everything's going to be perfect and he'll wipe away every tear. But I think that Jesus wants to leave me here to do more work for you. Fruitful labor is the term that he uses. If you wake up tomorrow and you're alive again, what is God's calling on your life? Fruitful labor. To glorify God and to serve the people around you. And only Jesus can transform our lives so we can believe the impossible salvation in Him, ripping out a mulberry tree, throwing a mountain into the sea, that we would, sinners like us would be saved, but also He gives us the grace to live ordinary lives of everyday obedience. Okay, third point, Jesus heals the ungrateful and the grateful. Jesus heals the ungrateful and the grateful, which is good news, especially for those of us that are ungrateful. Verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers. They stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. So this is an interesting contrast. The other story where he cleansed a leper is this really close, intimate story. In Luke chapter 5, there's this leper that comes to Jesus, and it's like, if you just wished, you could make me clean. And Jesus says, I, I do wish. And he comes close, and he touches the man, and he cleanses him. It's a beautiful, intimate moment. It shows us how Jesus is not afraid of our sin. It shows us how Jesus doesn't run away from us the same way we run away from hard things in life, but Jesus runs to us in our pain. Beautiful story. I grabbed a a picture that kind of represents this idea of Jesus reaching out to heal a leper. 
And so I want you to remember that, that Jesus is close to you in your sickness, in your sin, and in your pain. We've hammered this several times over the last few weeks, but what Christians need to not do is to go try and fix ourselves and hide and then bring our fixed life back to Jesus. What we need to do is just say, Jesus, have mercy on me. If, if you desire, you'll fix me. And we bring ourselves broken and torn and sick and sore, and we bring ourselves to him, and he gives us this healing and his grace. Now, it's interesting because that picture in Luke 5 is a little bit of a contrast with this one, right? Because in this story, the lepers stand a far way off, right? And so they're at a distance, and they're having to yell, Jesus, have mercy on us, this whole group of lepers. Now, they were commanded to stay far away from people, right, to keep from infecting people. That was a part of the Jewish law. And it was just courtesy on their part, and they would often gather in colonies and groups to take care of each other because they, they could be around each other because they were already infected, but they didn't want to infect healthy people. And so a lot of the isolation and the struggle that they lived with was having to live separate from people. So they're far away yelling at him, and in this story, Jesus heals them from a distance, right? He doesn't touch them in this story. Um, and so I kind of think this is like the two different healings for introverts and extroverts, Right? Like, I, I love, I'm a hugger. I love to touch people. And like, I love this image of Jesus, you know, coming close and touching us for the healing. Some of you would prefer the yelling across the street healing from Jesus, right? You're like, Jesus, just heal me from afar. I don't want to get too close, right? And that's kind of, it's kind of what we have taking place in this story. Jesus have mercy on us. They lifted up their voices. They cried out to him from a distance. And, and what does he tell them to do? Where is it? Verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. What is this about? Well, it's when you're healed, you'd have to go show yourself to the priest to be certified. So then you could re-enter society as now I am clean, right? You're stamped clean. And so he's basically guaranteeing their, their healing by saying, yeah, go show yourself to the priests. You got it. Go take care of it. Go do the next step. And so as they're going, the cleansing happens. It says, as they went, they were cleansed. Verse 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. We've talked about this before. The Samaritans were members of a cult that didn't believe all the same scriptures. It was kind of a mix of the Jewish scriptures and other beliefs. Idol worship was mixed into it. They were also racially mixed, and so there was a level of racism. We, we have to say again and again, whenever the Jews were racist, that was wrong. And that was not taught from the Scriptures, but it often happened, just like those kinds of things happen in our society as well. And so there was some racism, and there was some cultic distance between them and the Samaritans. But every time a Samaritan shows up, what is Jesus' attitude towards this person? It's an attitude of love, of grace, of nearness. And so that reminds you and me that even though we're outsiders, we grew up in the wrong family or in the wrong neighborhood or part of the wrong crowd, Jesus still shows grace to us. Jesus still shows his kindness and his love. Verse 17, he said, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus likes to point out when the wrong kind of people have faith too. He's like, you see, faith isn't about where you come from, what church you went to, or what color your skin is. Faith is about what Jesus has done in your life. 
and confessing that and trusting in who he is. So he's like, well, where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. It's a beautiful story because, again, we have this tension of Jesus actually cleansed. He actually healed all 10 of them. Jesus healed them all. And so you got 10 people that cried out to God and said, God, will you heal me? And he healed all 10. And so number one application for that is is if you have a need, cry out to God. God doesn't always heal us right then. Sometimes he heals us in eternity, but always run to God with your pain and with your sickness and with your problems. This is what he loves to do. These people cried out to God, and then one of them stands out. And Jesus makes a deal of it, right? He's like, where are the rest of them? Where are the other nine? Why are they not grateful? Why are they not praising God? Why are they not returning and giving thanks? And so I think Jesus really wants us to highlight the importance here of gratefulness. So Jesus shows grace to us unconditionally, even when we're not perfect or when we don't do things right. The ungrateful and the grateful are healed. But Jesus also wants to highlight the importance of gratefulness. He wants to lift this up and say, this is really important. Gratefulness is a really good and beautiful thing. I would describe it as a practice of discipleship. So a lot of times we talk about Bible study, and that can kind of sound academic, and that can sound very bookish, but you know what one basic way that you can grow as a follower of Jesus is just giving thanks. Just giving thanks, just having gratefulness. That can actually grow you and conform you to the image of Jesus. That can grow you spiritually, and that's the kind of thing he's highlighting here. There's great power in gratefulness. In Philippians 4, we're told that that's one of the cures in helping us move beyond anxiety. If you're struggling with anxiousness and worry, he says, pray and give thanks. That's one of the ways that you can experience the peace of Christ in your heart. And so here he's highlighting this as well. Thankfulness is also something that just comes up again and again in the Bible. It's actually uh, the word that's used in other traditions to describe what we call the communion meal, right? So Christians take this symbolic meal. We use the word communion, which is also a biblical term, but there's this other term, uh, Eucharist. Have y'all ever heard that before? Eucharist is the Greek word for give thanks, thanksgiving. And so in some Christian traditions, this meal is called the Thanksgiving meal. What is it about? It's giving thanks for Christ. Christ gave thanks, broke bread, gave thanks when he started this in the Last Supper. But then every time we as Christians come together around this symbolic meal, we're remembering Jesus, his broken body, his spilled blood, we're giving thanks. It's one of the ways that we're conformed to the image of Christ. One of the ways that we grow as followers of Jesus is giving thanks. There was a book that came out years ago called 1,000 Gifts. And I don't know that you need to read the whole book to get the idea. The idea is basically just she, this woman that wrote the book just made a list of 1,000 things she was thankful for and really uh, studied and focused on the reality that as we give thanks more and more, it grows our heart of faith to God and what he's given to us. Okay, so Jesus breaks our categories. We'll, we'll wrap up here. There are a lot of different ways that Jesus breaks our, our category, uh, categories. He commands rebuke and forgiveness. We're not supposed to just be one or the other, but, but both kinds of Christians by God's grace. Jesus enables the impossible and the ordinary. He says there's this kind of impossible faith of trusting him with amazing things, particularly our internal salvation, but there's also the ordinary faith of just obeying Jesus 
And Jesus is the one that grants the grace for both of those things. And then finally, Jesus heals the ungrateful and the grateful. And I just want to finish with the last couple of verses of, of the section. It says, Jesus said, was no one else here? No one else that felt thanks? No one else that would return to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, then rise, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Now, this is just a simple response at one level. And so I don't want to make too much of a thing out of it, right? He's just saying, God bless you. Go do your thing. You're healed. You're going to be all right. Your faith is a really good and beautiful thing. He's commending their faith there, right? But it's interesting when you read it in the Greek, it it literally reads, your faith has saved you. Uh, And so in the context, because it's a healing, they use the word well, but it's the Greek word for salvation, which we associate most often with our ultimate eternal salvation. Now, the word can mean both. both. (laughs) Trip it on my words here. The word can mean both. Salvation can mean just physical healing, but it can also mean eternal salvation. But most scholars think he's, he's kind of pointing out a hint here. You know what? Gratefulness is a sign that you have true faith in Jesus as you practice this habit of giving thanks Again and again, Jesus says, your faith is what saves you. Your faith in Jesus. Jesus is the one that saves you. Go your way in peace. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you have saved us by giving your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to live the perfect life we couldn't live, but also to to die that sacrificial death and then to rise from the dead, proving that he has conquered sin and death. Help us to trust you, Lord. Help us to have faith. We pray that you would continue to to break our categories as you teach us to depend on you, to trust you every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.